all drowned but 868. About 1,232 lost lives in Titanic's plunge. Greatest sea disaster for years. Black Tuesday, the stock market crash of 1929. Prohibition ends at last. War, Oahu bombed by Japanese planes. Nazis quit war. Man walks on the moon. Kennedy assassinated. Nixon resigns. Dick Cheney is a robot. Godzilla eats Bono. These are real newspaper headlines from some of the biggest events of the 20th century, and the last two are from tabloids. Headlines grab our attention. They tell us what's most important, and they preview what's ahead. At the beginning of this year, we picked up the Gospel of Mark after starting with it last year. Now, the Gospel of Mark begins with something like a headline in chapter 1, verse 1. You could turn there, if you'd like, to page 836. Begins with a headline. It goes like this. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You just take those and make them big, bold letters and put them on a giant newspaper. Here, Mark tells us what's most important and what he'll be writing about. Jesus. Jesus is his subject. Mark's going to highlight who Jesus is, his identity. We could even spot it in his, headlight, in his uh, headline. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Mark is going to highlight what Jesus came to do, his work, his mission. He's going to tell us why Jesus is gospel, good news. Now, when we read the story of Jesus as told by Mark, we get to see Jesus' greatness displayed in his authority. His authority over death, his authority over disease, his authority over nature, and his authority over Satan. As we read the story of Jesus as told by Mark, we get to see Jesus' fame spread. And we get to see Jesus respond to that fame by clarifying what it means to follow him, to be his disciple. When we read of Mark telling the story of Jesus, we get to see Jesus correct bad responses to him. Bad responses that come from groups like the Pharisees and even a group like the disciples, his own disciples. Now, I thought it might be helpful for our last sermon in Mark this time around to go through what we've covered so far and notice some headlines. Notice some headlines and remember the central subject, Jesus himself. So turn with me to Mark 1. You might be there already. It's page 836. If you're looking at a pew Bible like this. And we notice the first big headline. I'm going to take a quick tour to what we've been through so far. Notice some other headlines. So if you're new to the Bible, uh, big numbers. When I say 115, for example, which is the verse we'll next look at, you're going to look at the big number one. The small number 15. So look at Mark 1, 15. It says this. Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. If there's a headline over Jesus' preaching, it's that. Right there. Mark 1, 15. You can keep going to the next page, 837. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Here we see a stunning claim from Jesus. He says, But that you may know 
that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Here's another headline. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a, physi- of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, clarifying who his followers are. Those who know they need him. Keep going. Another headline, chapter 3. Chapter 3, flip the page, 838. Chapter 3, verse 6. It says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. This is one of the things we've noticed in Mark. Jesus' fame spreads, but also underneath that, there's an undercurrent of opposition that's spreading also against Jesus. Well, let's keep going. Chapter 3, verse 35. Another headline. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Again, clarifying what it means to be his disciple. Keep going, more headlines still. Look at chapter 4, verse 41. Chapter 4, verse 41, on page 840, very top. After Jesus calms a storm, the disciples say this, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Again, noticing Jesus does something that only God can do. Speaking of his identity, who then is this? Might be the central question of Mark's gospel. Keep going, other headlines. Chapter 5, verse 19. Bottom of 840, first column. Says, and he did not permit him, um, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Here Jesus is saying to a man who's in a Gentile region, a non-Jewish region, He's sowing seeds of the gospel that will be taken throughout the world, not just Israel. Keep going, more headlines. Chapter 6, verse 6, we see more oppositions from his hometown of Nazareth. It says, he marveled because of their unbelief. Chapter 6, verse 29, more opposition still. John the Baptist is murdered. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. A foreshadowing what will happen to Jesus. More headlines, look at chapter 6, verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. This crowd of what was nearly 20,000 people, speaking of Jesus' sufficiency to provide. More headlines still, chapter 7, verse 15. Top of 843. Jesus says this to the Pharisees. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus' teaching, clarifying what the nature of sin is, what the nature of our hearts are, and again, teaching us what it means to follow him, not just outward only, but our whole selves. We can look at chapter 7, verse 30, chapter 7, verse 37, chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, and see Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles again. We look at verses we've noticed in recent weeks. Chapter 8, verse 29. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. You see Peter's eyes opened to see who Jesus really is. But shortly after that, Jesus is going to clarify what that actually means. Look down at chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So this is who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And what does it mean to follow him? Well, again, don't have to look much further. Look at chapter 8, verse 34 at the bottom of page 844. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Finally, last headline we noticed last week. Look at chapter 9, verse 3. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. We see Jesus' glory unveiled for a moment. See that he is God in the flesh. So these are some headlines of the Gospel of Mark so far. And we pick up today in our passage beginning at verse 14. You'll find it at the bottom of page 844. It goes into the next page. We're going to read verses 14 to 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. Well, this passage continues the themes that Mark has begun so far. Jesus remains the focus. And why does this passage matter? We should answer that question in some way every week. Why does this passage matter? What Jesus does here speaks to our pride. And it reminds us that we are not the hero. He is. What, at the same time, what Jesus does here speaks to our despair because it reminds us we are not the hero, but he is. You see, it's saying the same thing, but it does two different things. 
both humbles us and it uplifts us. No other message can do that besides the gospel. Here's what I think the main point of our passage is, the big idea, the main takeaway. When we can do nothing to help ourselves, we don't need a sufficient faith. We need a sufficient Savior. When we can do nothing to help ourselves, we don't need a sufficient faith. We need a sufficient Savior. We'll, go, uh, we'll see this main idea most clearly by the end of our passage today. And we're going to walk through Mark 9, verses 14 to 29 by asking four questions. The first, what is the conflict? Secondly, what does Jesus say to do with a conflict? Third, why should we bring this conflict to him? And fourth, how should we bring this conflict to him? Today, friends, we want to be realists. You don't want to escape the reality that's in front of us. We don't want to avoid it. We want to be real. We can't say everything is fine. We can't. There's just too much evidence to the contrary. Friends, it's okay. You have permission this morning to say everything is not fine. What you don't have permission to do is to say that there is no hope. You have permission to say everything is not fine. Jesus allows us to be realists, but he does not allow us to be hopeless. So friends, let's dive in. Ask the first question. What is the conflict? Just going to notice what's going on in this passage a little bit like we always try to do. So here we see Jesus, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of his disciples. They've come down off the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. He was transformed in a unique way, unveiling his glory. Now, after enduring yet another misunderstanding from his disciples, the problems don't end that Jesus encounters. It strikes me as I read this, and I, just as we've been going through Mark, that Jesus always seems to meet people at their lowest moments. Talk about enduring our sorrows. He meets people at their lowest moments, whether it's a tragedy, whether it's a, a disobedience. Jesus meets people at their lowest moments point. And here it's no different. Here, Jesus walks up on a scene that's mixed with tension and tragedy. So the nine other disciples have been busy, and they're there with a big crowd and some scribes, and they're upset about something. It's not unlike what Moses experienced after he came down the mountain, like we read in Exodus 32. What did he find? He found the golden calf. He found chaos. Now, if you're a parent, if you're a mom or a dad, you know what it's like to walk into the house, not know what's going on, but know whatever it is, it's chaotic. <laughs> and it ain't good. So verse 15, Jesus arrives on the scene, and we find that his presence commands attention. Now, some speculate that this is because he's still a little bit shiny from his transfiguration. It's like when you go to Myrtle Beach and you get sunburnt and then you come back to Ohio and you're still sunburnt. That's never happened to me, by the way. No. Um, no, no, I don't think that's what's going on here. Uh, it would be useless for Jesus to tell Peter, James, and John to keep the transfiguration secret if the effects from the transfiguration were in plain sight for everyone to see. No, I just think as we've read the Gospel of Mark so far, everywhere Jesus goes, his reputation precedes him. It's everywhere he goes. So, 
comes off the mountain, sees another chaotic mess, and you know, he didn't say, you know, this time I've had enough. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go around it. I'm gonna let them take care of it themselves. No, he sees the mess and he enters the mess, just like he did with us. And he draws out of them what's really going on. You see that in verse 16? While Jesus was out of the office, so to speak, he had a call that his assistants attempted to take care of themselves. And the call was from a father whose son was in a bad spot. And based on the verses we read, uh, verse 17, 18, seems that this boy had epileptic symptoms. Matthew telling the same story says that straight up, that the boy had epilepsy. But the fa- this father says, the boy's father says, the causes of this aren't natural. They're supernatural. Now, before we just jump to conclusions and say, hey, this was 2,000 years ago, they don't have modern science, you know, they, anything they can't explain, they just jump to it. It must be supernatural, anything that they can't explain. Well, no, I think, hold on just a second, though. When we notice the added details of verse 22, and it's not just that this boy's having seizures. These fits lead this boy into water and into fire. This is something unnatural to epilepsy. Speaking to the disciples, Jesus himself affirms that this was a kind of evil that affected this boy. So that's what's going on here. Back to the first question we're asking. What is the conflict? The conflict is dealing with evil. In this story, it relates to demonic activity that affects people to the point where it attempts to destroy them. Now, it's worth taking a moment to speak to this conflict with evil relating to Satan and relating to the conflict more broadly. This passage forces us to say, that this kind of activity is real. Forces us to say that. At the same time, this isn't all that the Bible has to say about demonic activity and evil in the world. It's not all the Bible has to say. So this passage shows us Satan and evil's goal in relation to people. The goal of destruction. The Bible speaks in other places, like Genesis 4 where God tells Cain that sin's desire is for him. The Bible speaks in Proverbs 7 of sin coaxing us into the way of death. The Bible speaks in 1 Peter 5 that the devil is prowling around like a, like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. The Bible speaks in 2 Timothy 2 of Satan capturing people to do his will. Satan and evil want to destroy people, keep them from the Lord, and oppose the kingdom of God. How do they do that? How does it work? At times, the method they employ is what happens here in Mark 9. Gaining such an influence over a person that we can say that they are possessed by an evil. Now, I know we've read a lot about this kind of activity in Mark, but the rest of the New Testament describes that the method that evil and Satan use most of the time is not an extraordinary method like this one. The method they use is radically ordinary. 
The devil shoots arrows at our hearts. He is daily active. Jesus calls him a liar and a murderer. He employs other methods. Methods like deception. Taking things that will destroy us and wrapping them in pleasure and self-righteousness. He has methods to convince us, and we have a way of convincing ourselves that doing what is pleasurable is always right. That doing what is in our interests is always right. That's deceptive. That's powerful. Evil, moreover, is skilled at propping up a facade of religiosity and morality in order to hide our selfishness. Holding up to our supposed goodness, holding on to that while wanting to live however we want. Every person, each one of us, faces that danger of evil. The danger of these utterly devastating things is that they often look remarkably ordinary. Friends, Satan has so embedded the lies of sin and evil into the world that we can hardly detect them. You want to know when they get unmasked? You want an example of that? Think of how hard it is, how awkward and how strained it is just to talk about God and Jesus in the Bible in everyday conversation. You want evidence that Satan is the prince of this air? Why is that the case? C.S. Lewis speaks of evil's remarkably ordinary methods in his classic book, The Screwtape Letters, which are letters from demons, their strategies against people. It says this, It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Jesus says the way to destruction is easy. It's wide. And many are those who enter it. That's the conflict. The conflict is evil. And that's not a conflict limited to this story of Mark 9. It's not a conflict limited to murder trials and concentration camps, although it is its ultimate end. That conflict extends to each one of us here. So we return to this story and ask a second question. What does Jesus say to do with this conflict? Well, the father of the boy describes to Jesus what was going on and how this situation stumped his disciples. You see Jesus' response, right? He's exasperated. You know, it, these people were arguing, and perhaps the boy was the subject of the argument that Jesus walks upon. Might not be far-fetched to say that since Jesus' disciples couldn't do anything, then the people around Jesus claimed that Jesus himself couldn't do anything about it either. Now, that would be a ridiculous argument. How much has Jesus done to show that he's capable of this in this situation? But Jesus doesn't take his ball and go home like I would at this point. He stays. In spite of the disbelief from the crowd, 
Jesus says this, the very end of verse 19. He says, bring the child to me. Bring him to me. This answers our question about the conflict, about what to do with it, doesn't it? What do we do in the face of evil? We bring it to Jesus. After Jesus healed the boy, his disciples asked them why they couldn't. And Jesus said that this kind of evil can't be driven out besides anything but prayer. To paraphrase, you guys didn't bring this to me. You did it on your own. So friends, I want you to think. Don't think too hard, okay? What is the opposite of bringing our sin and our evil and the mess of our entire lives to Christ? What is the opposite of that? Keeping it to yourself. That's the opposite. Friends, this works for those who have not yet trusted and followed Christ. And believe it or not, this works for those who have trusted and followed Christ. For those who aren't Christians here, first, thank you that you're here. Let us tell you how us Christians, how our hearts used to operate. How our hearts used to keep the sin and evil to ourselves. How we used to do that. We would ignore the evil of our heart. We would distract ourselves with busyness. Or we would think that it's just too hard to handle, so we're going to put it aside. We would numb ourselves with other things. We would ignore the evil in our hearts by masking it. By giving the front of an Instagram-worthy life. Doing plenty of volunteering by thinking how it's just too bad, so we'll hide it. Faced with the evil of our hearts, before Christ, we would deny it. We would believe how wonderful we are, how much potential we have. We would compare ourselves to other people and elevate ourselves above them. Faced with the evil of our hearts, we would keep it to ourselves at the end of the day because we loved it. That's why. The end of the matter is that we keep our sin to ourselves and keep it from Jesus because we love it too much to let it go. Jesus tells this father to bring his son to him. To us who profess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, will we do the same? Will we bring the evil of our heart to Christ? Will we examine ourselves and continue to take the hidden and not-so-hidden evils of our hearts to Jesus, or will we keep them to ourselves? As a church, we want to help one another walk in the light of Christ. We want to help one another bring our sin to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to act as if everything is fine and hunky-dory. No, we don't want to be ho-hum either. But friends, we don't have to be impressive. Let's be honest about our sin. Let's be honest about the evil in our heart, knowing that Jesus invites us to bring it to him and receive his grace. Martin Luther implored his church to do the same. He says this, May a merciful God preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is a saint. 
I want to be in the church of the faint-hearted, the feeble and the ailing, who feel and recognize the wretchedness of their sins, who sigh and cry to God incessantly for comfort and help. We know the conflict is real, and evil and sin, and we know what to do with it. Not keep it to ourselves, bring it to Christ. But why? Why should we bring our evil to Christ? Let's keep reading. Verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Excuse me. Jesus asking this man about his son's problem allows us, allows the father to be brutally honest about what's going on to be brutally honest about the grimness of this situation. And God and friends, Jesus doesn't ask us not to be real. But Jesus asking this father about what's going on also allows this dad to be brutally honest about who's in front of him, about Jesus himself. Now, while his, this evil that's affecting his son is in plain view, why should the father bring his son to Jesus? I think we could see this man thinking through this question as he's talking to Christ. The reasons why he would bring his demon-possessed son to Jesus are the same reasons why we would bring our evils to the Lord. I think there are at least three reasons. Three reasons why we should bring this conflict to Christ. First, it's real. This conflict is real. Think about the man in this story. There's no way he could deny that there's a problem. No way. His son is having another seizure-like fit right in front of Jesus. Friends, there's no way we can deny that there's a problem either. Did you know that there aren't any good people? That's a, that's a really controversial thing to say. So back up a second. There are people who do relatively good things. When you compare it to what other people do, yes. And not everyone is as bad as they could be. But each of us has a sin or an evil problem. This problem is real. The very next chapter of Mark, very next chapter, Mark 10, Jesus is going to run into a guy who calls him a good teacher. What's Jesus' response? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. This problem is real. If we deny that this is a problem, 1 John 1.10 says, if we deny we have sin, we make God a liar. This conflict is real. That's why we should bring it to Jesus. The second reason is this. This conflict, this evil, it's not just real. This evil, our evil, is beyond us. It's beyond us. The man in this story understood this, but it's something that Jesus' disciples don't understand, and it's something that we have a hard time understanding. 
The man's son dealt with this evil spirit since childhood. Human hopes had been exhausted. There was nothing that this father could do for his son. He was hopeless. He was helpless. And he tells Jesus he needs help and he needs compassion. But friends, that we can't handle our sin is something that we have a hard time admitting. Now, if you push hard enough, most people won't deny that first reason. Most people won't deny the reality of their sin. Most people will admit that they have dark corners of their lives and hearts that they are ashamed of and not proud of. But they'll say that this is what it means to be human. A mixed bag of good and bad. Friends, that's not what it means to be human. This is what it means to be a fallen human. Our evil is way bigger of a problem than we realize. The creator God has told us, us, the people who he's made, the people who he's made in his image, the people who he's given life to, he's told us to love him with all of our being and to have no other gods before him. Every time we sin, even the most supposed smallest acts of sin, we fail at that fundamental command. It's an act of treason. It's replacing God as our authority with ourself. You know how many times a day we commit treason against the Lord? That includes each one of us. So in an age when we are so quick to condemn, we have to remember that we are condemned as well. How is God supposed to be at peace with us if we've committed treason against him time and time and time and time again? Friends, you can have all the good deeds. You can go through all the programs. You can adopt all the positive thinking. But you cannot, you cannot pay for your sin. You can't pay for your treason. We are not able to stand under the full weight of God's judgment for our sin. So the reason why we bring our evil to Jesus, because it goes beyond us. And that's still true even after we come to Jesus for the first time. Our evil often remains beyond us. Relates to how we live in holiness in general. Friends, we're going to have moments in our walk with Christ when our struggle with sin feels beyond us. If you haven't had a moment like this, I don't know, friends, you might be at peace with your sin. There will be times when we know all the reasons why we shouldn't do a certain sin and yet we still do it anyway. There will be times when we've put up all the barriers to avoid a certain sin and yet we will do it anyway. There will be times when we've set in place measures of accountability to avoid sin, and yet we will do it anyway. There will be times, even when we confess the sin that we struggle with, but we do it in a superficial way to coax our conscience, and we will still desire that sin. This is beyond us. All those things are good things. I mean, the reasons not to sin, having barriers against it, accountability, confession, all good things but they are useless if we treat sin as if we can defeat it on our own without Christ. Friends, we act 
as if evil isn't beyond us in how we approach those who don't know Christ. We act as if we can have a handle on this problem. We, act, we have overconfidence that if we just have good enough arguments, that if we just have good enough winsomeness, if we just ask the right questions, if we just come with the right timing, then people will repent and believe. Or we act as if this is beyond us and we just despair. Like there's absolutely nothing we can say or do, so why say anything? Friends, the truth is we are helpless. This is beyond us. Our conflict is beyond us. But it's not beyond Christ. So in whatever way, place him before those who don't know him. So though our evil may, beyond, uh, may be beyond us, it is real. The first two reasons why we would bring it to Christ. Third reason why we bring this conflict to Christ is because it's not beyond him. It's not beyond him. That's what this man in Mark 9 needed to be convinced of. If you can do anything, is what he tells Jesus. Jesus tells him, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, friends, I, I want you not to do something here. I want you not to get this tattooed on your arm and try to go dunk a basketball, fail, and then ask why it didn't work. Jesus is not telling this man, believe in yourself. This man has just recognized how helpless and insufficient he is. No, Jesus is telling the man, believe in me. And when Jesus goes on to heal the boy, he proves that where this man was insufficient, Jesus was sufficient. That's what Mark wants us to see. So friend, if you get to the point where you see your helplessness, and that you think that there's no way you can make up for and overcome and make good on your past. When you come to that point, you'll be right. You can't bear the weight of it. But Jesus can. And Jesus did. Jesus defeated sin. Jesus defeated Satan. Jesus satisfied the justice owed for our sin. That is the glory of the cross, and it's all verified by his empty tomb. Christian, continue to bring your sin to your Savior. The evil that besets you and that makes you feel hopeless, be it bitterness, be it worry, be it lust, be it pride, be it addiction, the evil that besets us, is not beyond our Savior. Romans 6.2 says, not only that Jesus died for our sin, but because of Jesus' death, we also have died to sin. So remember what Christ has done in your place. Remove the power of sin. Our conflict is evil. Jesus tells us to bring it to him. And we do this because we know it's real, we know it's beyond us, and we know it's not beyond him. The last question we want to answer is how do we do this? How? How do we bring our sin to him? I want us to hone in on verses 24 and 29. Verse 24 says, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Verse 29, Jesus says, 
This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Most kids are picky eaters. They're anything like I was. They're skeptical of any food beyond chicken nuggets and macaroni and cheese. (laughs) Now, one line of logic you might use to get a kid to try a new food is to say something like this. Taste it because you will like it. Just a taste. You could be missing out on something great. But we don't know until we try it. Maybe you've been there as a child and we're convinced just to taste. And so you take like the microscopic bite of a food and you can't tell whether or not it's good anyway. I think this is how the father in Mark 9 comes to Jesus. He doesn't have all of his questions answered. He isn't completely convinced, but he takes a taste. And he sees that Jesus is sweet. Psalm 34, 18 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. The man in this story does exactly that. We might have plenty of skepticism about something like food, about how good a certain food is. But we won't really know unless we taste it. This man had his doubts and his fears and his questions, but he came anyway. Real faith, one commentator on this passage says, real faith is not primarily the absence of doubts and fears. Rather, real faith is committing to and obeying Jesus despite your doubts and fears. So friends, the principle is this, how we bring our evil to Jesus. We bring our evil to Jesus in faith. But it's not faith in our faith, it's faith in Jesus. It's not faith in our faith, it's faith in Jesus. I've heard it explained like this using another event from the Bible. Uh, The Passover. You guys remember the Passover back in Exodus? So it was the last plague in Egypt where the Israelites are enslaved. And the last plague was the taking of the firstborn son. And what did God tell the Israelites to do for the last plague? They take the the blood of a lamb and put it on their doorposts. And so you can picture a conversation between two different Israelites. You know, one goes up to the other and says, have you you heard what's what's going on, what what God's going to do? Like, yeah, it's pretty crazy, the other one says. And what, are we, what are we supposed to do? Well, you, you heard. You were supposed to take the blood of the lamb, put it over our doorposts. The, other, the first guy says, oh, that sounds really weird. Are, are you sure? Like, of course I'm sure. This is what God says, the other, the other guy says. All right, the first guy says, I, I guess I'll do it. Pass, uh, the tenth plague comes, the night comes. Which house does God pass over? The first one or the second one? Passes over both. It's not the faith that saved either of these men. It was the blood of the lamb that saved them. The father in Mark 9 recognized his emptiness and his inability and came to Jesus. Not after lots of academic deliberation. He came to Jesus out of desperation. You may feel weak and frail, but that's when Jesus proves strong and able. So friend, have you realized that your sin is beyond your ability to handle? 
Do you see the Jesus who is presented here in Mark 9? Friend, would you leave behind your sin and place it at his feet? He died to pay for it, to set you free from it, and lives that you would live close to him. You may have lots of questions, but you won't know them unless you come. You won't know really unless you taste. Our faith isn't in our faith. It's in Jesus. So in closing, we're asking how we bring our sin or our evil to the Lord. We do so with confidence in him, not with confidence in how confident we are. Jesus' words to his disciples at the very end of the passage reminds us that this principle doesn't change as we go on with the Lord. It doesn't change. He says this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Well, you might think, I'm just not good at praying. Do you really think prayer works because we are good at praying? Or because he is good at answering? Why would we pray at all if our confidence was in ourselves? We pray precisely because we need God. We have not gotten good enough at this thing called Christianity that we no longer need the Lord. Pray with confidence that God hears you, not because of how great we are, but because we stand on the merits of Christ. Pray with confidence, not in how great our faith is, but in how great our Savior is. And when we're feeling that what we face is impossible, that it's beyond us. Friends, we don't lean into ourselves, but into Jesus himself, who specializes in the impossible. The one who healed this boy. The one who says, for whom all things are possible. Let's pray. Lord God, what we face is, is beyond ourselves. And we stare our, our guilt in the face. And we stare each sin, each, each time we have shirked off your goodness to us and told you that we are better and that our sin is better than you. God, replace our love for sin with a greater love for Christ. We need that. It will not happen without you. Teach us to pray, not with confidence in ourselves, but with confidence in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.